Maybe your family has those stories that are told so frequently that they feel like they're your own, even though the events didn't happen to you. Actually, they couldn't have happened to you because you weren't even born yet. But you've heard the story so much that it, it feels like your own story. One of the stories in my family that gets regularly repeated is my parents taking my, my two older siblings when they were young, taking them to visit Washington's headquarters, there to, to, to experience the history, the drama of, of America's opening days. But my sister, frustrated after traveling through, and, and maybe that's your experience going through historic sites, or maybe it's just the, the tiredness of the long day, but, but as they're leaving, my, my sister turns to my parents, and this is what she told them. I don't think we should come back here anymore. Every time we come, he's never home. Because when you go to visit somebody's house and you see their bedroom and you learn about them, it's strange that they're not there. Now, if God doesn't arrive in chapter 8, then this temple becomes a mere historic site, a religious curiosity. The pilgrims who would come if God doesn't arrive, the children would drag their parents out of the city at the end of it and say, I don't think we should come back here. He's never home. It's because you and I know the, know the story. We, we, we just read it. We know the arrival of God, but but remember, so much of, of this day could be choreographed and planned, but would God really arrive? We see the, we see the preparations in the beginning of our chapter. Actually, we, we've seen it for several weeks as we've walked with Solomon through the building of this temple, the, the years that it took to construct it. We can calculate all the costs that, that went into it. We, we, can, we can think of the, the man hours and the resources that were used. But we hear that the, in, in this chapter, we're, we're here finding that the temple itself is done. It's been built, and now comes the pageantry. The, the people are there. The, the preparations begin. We see Solomon summoning to his presence in verse 1, the elders of the people. The descriptions in 1 and 2 show us that, that all the heads of the tribes are here. Verse 2, that, that all of the people of Israel have gathered in this place showing us the importance of this, and they're there because verse 2 tells us this is the festival, the time for the festival. There were three times each year that the Israelites had to come up to, this, to the city to, to worship, to Jerusalem. And this is one of those festivals, and when we, when we check the, the dates there in, in verse 2, the seventh month, we know that this then is the festival of the tabernacles, the feast of the tabernacles. A reminder that the people of God once were wandering in the desert. And so for this festival, they, they had to build little tabernacles, tents, structures, temporary structures. They weren't to sleep under their own roofs at night. They were to sleep in these tabernacles. A reminder that there were years in which they were a wandering people. But now, on this day, the ark of God will be taken from its tabernacle just down the hill on Mount Zion, the city of David, it will be taken from its temporary tabernacle and brought up the hill to, to the Temple Mount. It will be placed in a permanent home. I mean, do you, do you see what's taking place? It's, it's as if the, the, the wanderings of the people of God 
are over. No longer do they, they worship in that tent, that transportable tent. Now God has a permanent home. We're told in verse 3 that the, the, the priests, they take up the ark of the Lord. They carry this ark, this golden box. They carry it on poles to, to bring it up from the city of David up to its new home in the temple. We're told of the preparations of verse 5, that, that King Solomon, the entire assembly, assembly of Israel that had gathered about him, they were there in front of the ark of the Lord. And, and look at what verse 5 says as it ends. They were sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The preparations were great. The sacrifice is great. So many, so many sheep, so, so, so many cattle were slaughtered because God is here. Well, let's, let's think about the ark a little bit. When, when's the last time that, or, or the first time that David tried to bring the ark into Jerusalem? What happened? David had, had conquered the city of Jerusalem, and so he wants to bring the tabernacle there. But the first time he tries it, they're carrying the ark. And as the ark begins to fall, what happened? What did Uzzah do? He reached out and touched the ark, and Uzzah was killed. And so David said, I'm not bringing, the, I'm not bringing that in here. That's too dangerous. Poor David dumped it on a, on a man named Obed-Edom, I'm not taking this, you take it. Which is a terrible thing for a king to do. The last man that, that was near this, well, who disobeyed God, he, he died. So you hang on to it for a while. But then Obed-Edom is blessed. And so David is able to bring the ark into the city of Jerusalem. We, with a description of it that comes, comes to us in the, in, the, in the previous book of, of Samuel is the description of the king dancing with joy uninhibited joy that God will now reside inside the city of David, in Jerusalem. Now they're going to move from the tabernacle, the tent, up to the building, the temple. But the reminder about the ark takes us back even further, further than just one generation. We go beyond Solomon. We go beyond David, his father. We go, we go much further back. For the ark was built at the command of God, when the people were freed from slavery in Egypt. And there are reminders of that, of that in, this, in this chapter for us. The, the ark was, was built. The people were freed by God from Egypt. And so by God's command, they built this wooden, wooden ark, this box, covered it in gold. On the top is, a, is the cover with the, the cherubim, with the, the outstretched wings of these angels. This is the holy throne of God. That's what it's called in the book of Samuel. This is God's throne. This is the place where God dwells. The Psalms will describe it not just as his throne, but as his footstool. It's as if he sits up in heaven on his heavenly throne with his feet resting on this ark. But this ark is the, the picture of the promise of God with his people. And so the preparations bring this ark into the city. And what's, what's in it? We're, we're told in verse 9 what's inside this box, this ark are the, the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it. Remember, those are the commandments of God. The commandments that are given to us in, in Exodus and repeated for us in Deuteronomy. The, the commands of God, but they come with the promise that God is the, the God who is the rescuing God, the one who brought his people out of Egypt. 
And so the presence of God is connected with the the Word of God here. The ark was then with the people as they rebelled against God with them for 40 years of their wandering in the desert. But it's the ark at the beginning of Joshua that is carried by the priests and, and leads the people of God into the promised land. It's kept at Shiloh for the people to worship, moved to Gibeon, and then finally, finally after it's been taken by the Philistines, David it brings it into the city of Jerusalem. And so the party that David began a generation before, the rejoicing that the ark is here, is now being reaching its conclusion in, in Solomon's time, moving into its permanent home. And where is the, the permanent home of the ark? It's not merely inside the holy temple, but it's in that inner sanctuary, that farthest back most holy place. And so the priests carry it in. And once it's there, the, they will not enter that room again. I mean, we, we get that, that weird description about the poles in verse 8, that the poles were so long their ends could be seen from the holy place. So once you step beyond the curtain, you could still see, if you, if you were at just the right angle, you could see the poles there. Because only, and, and that's a reminder that, that the ark is still there. Because only once a year does anyone ever even see it, and it's only the high priest going into that most holy place. And when, when we're told there in verse 8 that it, that it is still there today, that means that day, not this day, because the temple is no more. But the party that David began is, is reaching its conclusion because God is keeping his promise. The preparations are complete. The promise is here. Notice, notice the way Solomon speaks to the people. In verse 14, we're told that the, the whole assembly of Israel is gathered there, and the king turns around and speaks to the people. He blesses the people of God gathered there. And, and notice what he says in verse 15. First, he offers praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is a moment in which Solomon could sort of trot out the, the workers, the, the photo op here of, of these are all the, the men that have accomplished great things. Look at what I have done. This could be the moment in which he exalts himself, but what does he do? He turns the praise away from himself to the Lord. Notice even in, in verse 15 the, the way he says that it is God's promise that has been fulfilled. Look at what he says in verse 15. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth. Do you see the emphasis Solomon is making? This day of celebration isn't about me as the king. It's not about this temple. It is about the promise that God himself made with his own mouth that God made to my Father David. It's the promise that, that God would dwell with his people, that he would be there forever. But we see the, the, the reminder again that we're not just talking about a promise that goes back one generation. We're talking about a promise that goes much further back than that. For twice in this statement to the people, Solomon says that, that this reminds us of the promise that God made when he brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. Look at verse 16. Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt. It's, it's the way he concludes this statement in verse 21. The statement to the people. Solomon says that, again that, that this is the, the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of Egypt. We've already, been, we've already seen that about the, the, the tablets that are there when the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites in verse 9 and brought them out of Egypt. This is the promise-keeping covenant God 
who makes a promise with his people, and he is the one who will keep the promise. This day of dedication is a day reminding us that God deserves to be praised because he is a promise-keeping God. Now, much of this could be choreographed, could be planned in advance, prepared for. When we, when we hear the, the account of it in, in Second Chronicles, we know that there's a, 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 an orchestra of 150 trumpets. The, the, the choir of priests sings. Surely there are preparations that, that took place in, in gathering the sheep and the cattle into their pens, of sharpening the knives for the sacrifice. So much of this day could be prepped for and practiced for. But there's a moment in the, in the chapter that I read that, that can't be planned for. It's that moment in verses 10 and 11. Will God actually show up? Will God move into this house, into this temple? Now, because you've already heard me read it and because you know the story of 1 Kings, it came as no surprise to us that God arrived. But think of it. Think of the pageantry. This is probably the greatest spectacle that you as a worshiper would have ever seen. The sacrifice is too numerous to count. The choir voices being raised, the king himself standing in front of you. And yet there is this moment where everyone would hold his or her breath. Does it make a difference? Will God arrive? And, and that's what we find in verse 10. The priests, having put the ark in the temple, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Now, this is a narrative detail that we could just blow right past, but this is the pinnacle, the high point of this entire narrative of the, the book of First and Second Kings. God himself has arrived on the scene. When the priests step out of the temple, a cloud fills the temple of Yahweh. Solomon describes for us in verse 12 what is happening. The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. See, if, if God didn't show up in verse 10, then this temple, no matter how many millions or billions of dollars of gold that it is covered in, no matter how many years it took to, to work, no matter, no matter how many international treaties had to be signed to get the supplies, if God doesn't show up, all of that work was for nothing. It is merely, as one commentator of a previous generation describes it, a ruinous heap if God doesn't show up. But God arrives. The moment of dramatic tension, the cloud fills the temple of the Lord. Now, now you might think, if I could have been there, if I could have seen it, then it would be easier to believe. Because you come to the, the Bible with, with, a, with a question did any of this really happen? Could a miracle like this, 
And now it's not a miracle in the sense that anybody was healed, but it's a miracle in that God himself has entered a physical building. And you might think, if I could see the miracle, then I would believe it. If I could have stood there, if I could have seen it with my own eyes, then I could trust it. But I want to ask you, really? Would seeing it change anything? Or would you be standing there thinking, wow, Solomon put a lot of work into this show. You got the trumpets, the singers, the priests, and pyrotechnics. I don't know how he did it. I don't know what kind of, what kind of people he had to bring in to do that, what he was burning inside there. But he filled that temple with a visible cloud, this dark cloud billowing out. I mean, it's the kind of thing the Imagineers could come up with down at Disney World. See, because a miracle, by definition, the one-time arrival of God on the scene isn't the kind of thing where you could say, well, hold on, why don't we, well, let's, let's cut the scene. I'd like to see it again from, from another angle. Let's, let's try it from camera two this time. It's not an experiment that you just repeat again and again to, to test, to convince yourself that it's really true. No, what does God do to try and convince you of this truth? He arrives on the scene. God himself makes himself known. And then, he explains it to us. Because even if we stood there, even if we watched it, we wouldn't have understood until we hear Solomon himself say, the Lord, the Lord told us this would happen, that he would dwell here in this temple. But, but even, as, even as this cloud reveals to us God's presence and God's glory, the cloud, in a sense, also conceals because we don't get to see the fullness of, of who God is, the fullness of his glory. And, and notice what happens. As soon as the priests step out, the cloud, the glory cloud of God fills the temple, but now the priests can't get back in. It, the, the presence of God, I mean, this passage is showing us something of the tension that's always there for us in the Bible. That you and I are meant to be in the presence of God, in relationship with him. And yet, we are people so broken by sin that we, we can't. We can't walk in. We need sacrifices. We need mediators. And so when God reveals himself, when his presence is here, he's pushed the priests aside. They can't enter the temple while God's presence fills it. And it's the same thing that happened when God first came down upon the tabernacle, that movable temple that they carried with them in the desert. When the, when the glory cloud of God filled that tabernacle, we're told that, that Moses couldn't go in because God was there. And that's, that's the tension that this passage is showing us. That we desperately need God's presence, but when he arrives, we need something more. Because as we, as we sang in that hymn, God's presence to us is a great comfort when God says, I will be with you. Through fiery trials, I will be with you. That's a word of comfort to us. That wherever I go, whatever trouble I'm in, God is with me. But God's presence is also a threat to us. When we have sinned against God, when we try and keep it hidden, when we, when we tuck it away, everywhere I go, God is there. When I'm in the, the midst of, of, of toil, God is there. When I'm Committing sin, rebelling against God, God is there. Because God's being in God's presence as a sinful 
person should frighten us. I mean, this, this whole passage should actually cause us to kind of sit up and take seriously what worship really involves, what being in the presence of God involves. And I don't, I don't mean take it seriously as to, like, make sure you have a tie on before you walk in the room. I mean, take it seriously spiritually. That when you come, you don't come just because, well, it's that time, you know, I got to get going. That you come with the expectation that when I, when I arrive here, God will be present. You come with the, the anticipation that, that God is here with us. But you also come recognizing the seriousness of God's arrival. God has shown up, which means without forgiveness, you would be crushed by God's judgment. I mean, that's why in verse 5 they, they sacrifice so many sheep, so many cattle to cover the sins of the people. Because they see the greatness of their sin. That's what this chapter is showing us. We'll see it in, in even greater clarity next week as we continue and, and see and we listen to Solomon's prayer. The sin of the people requires a sacrifice. And so when God arrives, it should cause you to take it seriously, to listen to God, to hear his word. Because the presence of God brings with it not merely comfort but judgment. The presence of God can overwhelm us. The presence of God is not a comfort unless you have placed your trust in God's provision. And we, we see the cloud here, which reveals something to us about God's glory, but it also conceals. But we get a, a fuller picture of God's presence among us when we turn to the New Testament. Think of the way the Gospel of John begins. John stretches farther back in history than any of the other gospel writers. He stretches not just to, not just to the beginning of, of Jesus' life or the ministry of John the Baptist like Mark or, or back to the, the, the ministry of, of David and Abraham or, or even back to, to Adam like, like Luke will go. He goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. For he starts, the gospel of John begins with those words, in the beginning. In the beginning, the same words that, that Scripture begins with. And then we have the very familiar verse. The description of the Word, the Word of God, Jesus Himself, in verse 14. It's one you, you hear at, at Christmas time. We read in John 1, 14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. You've heard the translations. Jesus tabernacled among us. He pitched His tent and made His residence here with us. That's the promise that that temple, the, the tabernacle and the temple we're pointing to is the, the tabernacling of God in our midst. And so, and so John 1 verse 14 continues, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Do you want to know what God looks like, what his glory looks like? Then look to Jesus. That's what the gospel writer is telling us. But, but, it, but it'll continue. We see it in, in John 1 verse 16 where we see the story of grace. And the contrast, even with the Old Testament, how we have now a fullness of grace. Listen to what John says in John 1, 16 through 18. From the fullness of his grace, we've all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. See what John is telling us? That in the, in the Old Testament, in the time of Moses, the law was given. You could see the, the, the picture of God in, the, in that cloud, but you didn't have the, the full and complete picture of God's presence, but now you do. But where? Where do you look? You look to Jesus, the one who is full of grace and truth, the one who, who pours out his grace upon us. See, it's here that we find the presence of God that we need, the presence of God that becomes a comfort to us, that God himself has tabernacled in our midst, that he is here to dwell with us forever. And so the presence of God becomes not a threat to us when we turn in faith to Christ. The, prom- the presence of God becomes his gracious presence in the ministry of Jesus the Savior. Becky Pippert, in her classic book on evangelism, she introduces us to a college student named Bill. She describes Bill as as a very thoughtful student, but one who, just by looking at him, you weren't sure he had everything together. His hair was never combed. He he wandered around in, in faded clothing, and he never wore shoes. Didn't matter the time of year. This was at a at a campus in Portland. So you could get rain or sleet, and Bill would still wander around barefoot. Now, Bill came to know Jesus as his Savior while a college student, and so he he thought to himself, well, then I I need to go to church. And so there's a church just there across the street from campus. And so Bill wears what he always wears. Bill took all the time to not comb his hair that he usually takes. And, of course, he had no shoes. And so he wanders in to church, and as a college student, he's running his typical few minutes late. So he tries to find a seat, but it's full. And so he kind of moves himself down the aisle, but he keeps getting himself closer and closer to the front. Now a little bit of an interruption to the service already in progress. And finally, he gives up trying to squeeze himself into to any of the rows, and he just plops himself down at the front of the room right there in front of everybody, which as a college student going to a Bible study is a normal posture. You just kind of sit down on the carpet. But in the sanctuary, it feels out of place. Now the tension in the room begins to build as, as an older member of the congregation stands. And as Becky describes it, you can almost see him straighten his suit and tie and make his way to the front. The other college students who are there, who at least know enough of the routine to know you don't throw yourself on the floor at the front of the room, are thinking, oh, this isn't going to end well, but I, you kind of, I mean, what else are you going to do? Bill's kind of interrupted everything. And so they kind of expect that this man, as he makes his way to the front, will, will maybe try and do it politely, but drag Bill away. But as the congregation's eyes are focused on this scene, this church member, with a bit of effort, lowers himself onto the carpet at the front of the room. Now, Becky says she doesn't even know if Bill noticed the grace being extended to him. He was so oblivious, but everybody else in the room saw it. Do you see it? 
Do you see it here in 1 Kings? God making his dwelling among us. Do you see it in the ministry of Jesus? The one who has extended grace, the fullness of God's grace, grace upon grace to you. So lift your voice in praise. Praise to the God of the promise. The God who keeps his promise through the presence of Jesus with us. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we rejoice to hear the good news of your word. That you are the God who is present with us. And yet, Lord, for some who sit and listen to this word, your, your presence is a, a presence of judgment. For you are a holy God and we stand before you as sinners. And so, Lord, for those who have not acknowledged Jesus to be their Savior, their Rescuer, their only true King, I pray that even now, as this service concludes, that we would, we would hear this news of grace and that those who have not yet believed would turn from sin and put their trust in Jesus. Lord, for those of us who have received grace, make, make us givers of grace. Those who are willing to, to extend the, the promise of your presence to others. Lord, let us be serious about pursuing you in obedience and holiness. Following after you of, of being serious about coming into worship to hear your word. Lord, let your word speak truth to us. Words of comfort and hope. The promise of your presence in the in, the, in our Savior, Jesus. Lord, we come to rejoice in his name. The name of Jesus, our King. Jesus, our Savior. Amen.